It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. And race car drivers are generally very, very good. As far as our reaction times go, they're, they're generally on the top end. And so I think there is a skill set that is needed there when driving a race car at a high rate of speed and making these decisions. Joseph Newgarden won the IndyCar Championship in 2017 and 2019, driving a cutting-edge race car at 240 miles per hour in heavy traffic. Well, that's more than a football field every second, and it's jam-packed with risk. I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. And I'm former astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. Speaking of adrenaline, we're delighted to have Zoa Energy as this episode's sponsor. If you're in the adrenaline zone, you're also in the Zoaverse. We caught up with Joseph in Nashville just before he and Team Penske began final preparations for their first race in 2021. Joseph, really, we really appreciate uh, having this opportunity to talk to you. And I'm really looking forward to talking about your profession, the adrenaline involved and the risk that you have to manage coming from the background that I do flying in space. We go fast as well, but your fast, I think, is more difficult than our fast. In hey, wait a minute. To- <laughs> on an aircraft carrier, we go from zero to 140 in three seconds. Okay. I've got zero <laughs> to 17,500 miles per hour in eight and a half minutes. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> anyway, so Joseph, as we get started, really to set the stage for our listeners, we'd like to learn a, more, a little bit more about you. So tell us what sparked your desire as a kid to be a race car driver. What a pleasure. It's, it's so nice to speak with you all. And I always love these conversations with different groups of people that share an affinity for speed and adrenaline and just maximizing mechanics and pushing the limits as human beings. That's what we're all doing, right? And always striving to be better. But yeah, what's funny, just listening real quick, the first thing I wanted to say was I'm so comfortable driving a race car at 240 miles per hour at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway when I'm on the ground, but I I get so nervous flying in an airplane up in the sky. (laughs) And I just, I think that's so funny. Not all race car drivers get that way, but I have a bit of a fear of flying and I I don't know where the disconnect in my brain is. So that's one thing probably uh, not everybody knows about me. Joseph, it's interesting that there were a a number of very successful World War I and World War II pilots who started out as race car drivers. So maybe there's a future for you there. I need to be more educated on, on how aerodynamics or at least airplanes specifically, how they really work and the mechanics behind it. I've not studied it. And I think I, I, because I don't know it well enough, I'm such a control freak that, you know, because I understand a race car on the ground and I understand the way it operates and I, I understand the risks, I, under, I understand how to calculate everything. Maybe it puts my mind at ease and I don't really think of it. So I, I think there's something there. I could probably venture into it, but I've always heard learning to fly is probably the best cure to fixing a fear of it. You know, just to jump ahead a little bit, I think you make some really good points there because it's all about understanding the environment and and that gives you a sense of control over the environment and then you figure out how to manage everything. So I think you're dead on with that. It's, it's 
really about that knowledge piece, because I get that question a lot about flying in space. It's so scary. It's not scary when you understand the risks and you understand how you're managing them. Yeah, no, definitely. So how did you get into racing? Yeah, I guess to, to backtrack, and I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee, suburban America, path to growing up as a kid. I was always a fan of racing. I always had it on TV. My my grandfather and my father were huge race fans. So I grew up with everything, NASCAR, Formula One, and of course, IndyCar on, my, on, on TV every weekend, watch, watching races and learning about the sport and seeing cars go fast. So ever since I was a kid, I always wanted to get into go-karting or get a vehicle that could go really quick that I could you know drive. And my parents were very risk averse, oddly enough. They didn't want me to have, even a bicycle was hard to get as a kid. That's, that's how risk averse they were. So finally, when I was 13, I, I convinced my dad to, to take me go-karting and we started doing that and journeying up to Indianapolis together on a 300 mile trip up north and then back home. And the rest is kind of history from there. When it, did you figure out in your youth driving around in go-karts and, and like that, that you felt you were competitive, that you felt like, Hey, I really understand how this whole thing works. Was there a moment there or did it just happen gradually? Yeah, there's a couple of mental shifts that I know in my career. We, when I started out in go-karts, I, I was 13. It was completely new to me. I, I know nothing about it. And most people have an image in their head about what go-karts are. You see the fun carts at uh, anywhere. You go to a fair or a carnival or maybe you go to a vacation near the beach and they have a, a go-kart track that's just for amusement. And most people, they think of that, that's what a go-kart is. For me, I got into like real go-kart racing. I don't really know how to put it other than that. This is like really competitive, sanctioned championships that are put on all across North America. And you run in these carts that are specifically designed to regulations on these championships. So they, they have quite a bit of grip and they have a lot of power. If you would just go to a carnival and drive on a go-kart track, those carts may go 15, 20 miles per hour. The carts that I started driving when I was 13, they would go up to 65 miles per hour. So there's a big jump in performance. And so as a young kid getting into that, it was very terrifying for me. I didn't know that I could do it at, at first. It was pretty scary when I first drove a go-kart. But very quickly when I was you know, just a kid and starting to compete in, in a championship and learn about racing, it, I think it took me four or five races out of a 20 race championship. And I was already starting to, to be up at the front of the pack and race wins. So it, it didn't take long for me to catch on and, and to find that natural rhythm of how you get the most out of a, a vehicle around a given track and its environment. And I think that was the point early for me that, yeah, I, I love racing. I, I really want to keep doing this. I think I can get better at this and I can, can keep learning and trying to get more out of myself. That was the first point in my life where I'm like, you know what? This is what I love. I don't want to play baseball and basketball anymore. I want to continue racing and figure out how to keep doing this. As you went through this progression in, in karting at a young age, was there any formal instruction that you got or was it just get in the car and go? Because, you know, there are a lot of little things you got to learn. A cornering, you put more pressure on the front tires, you get better turn traction or whatever. How did you learn those things? Was it a trial and error or, or did you have some kind of formal instruction? Yeah, a little bit of both. The The good thing about my introduction into go-karting was my dad was great about researching a great place to start out. And being in Nashville, there's not really a great go-karting environment here. There's really no environment. You had to travel at least 300 miles away. The closest place was Indianapolis. And, and there was a, a karting facility that was 
east of the city. It's called New, Newcastle Motorsports Park. It was brand new. It was just built by a former IndyCar driver named Mark Dismore. And my father got in touch with Mark and said, my, my kid wants to start racing. We'd like to start doing this. And I, I was coached in the basics of how do you get started. And then a lot of it's trial and error. You end up running these races throughout an entire season, run 20, 25 races as a kid, and you learn a lot every weekend. And the key is to learn a lot. The people that aren't learning aren't getting better. Um, so there's this, this balancing act of, I think you have to have some natural talent within racing, but you have to have the work ethic. And so you balance the talent side of it and, and you can bring in the, the education component of that and the, the effort component where you're, you're constantly trying to improve your talent level or add to it and give yourself more tools to, to be well-rounded. So did that sort of paradigm continue as you progressed through the different stages of racing or was there more and more formal instruction or was it still trial and error all the way up to the top? No, I mean, there's, oh my gosh, we could talk for an hour on just this subject. Yeah. I've, I'm a huge believer in coaching. I think everybody in life needs coaches. Uh, it doesn't matter what the subject is. I think it's one of the most important things that we can have. Really, it's just the outside perspective of your own me as a person, I see things through my lens and it's one viewpoint and I feel like I could see it all and do it all. But at the end of the day, an alternate perspective is, is critical, I think, in anything that you're doing. And racing is no different. I've always enjoyed having that alternate perspective. So I've always seeked out coaching. I didn't have it as much in karting, but as soon as I got into car racing, coaching became more of a prominent figure in my career. It was very important for me to find as many resources as possible, at least resources that were useful and not distracting. So I tried to distill down, okay, what is, what is the right level of resource that I need from a coaching standpoint at every phase of my career? And that, that, that changed you know, when I, at all points. When you, when you get out of go-karting and you get into these, I like to call them baby indie cars, they're just small indie cars and you're, you're just basically learning at uh, a much slower rate of speed, how an actual car with suspension and slick racing tires, all that, how it all works. There's a kind of learning period there. And then as you progress up to more powerful, more capable cars, you, uh, in, in, you know, kind of improve your capacity and you improve your, your need or scope for, for more advanced coaching. Yeah, it, it was definitely a progression throughout my career. Do you use simulators at all in your training or is it the coach standing on the track watching you drive around the track? Yeah, simulation technology has, has really come to the forefront in our sport, mainly for cost. Probably about 20 years ago, I think simulation started getting introduced into racing in, in a very small way. And it really started ramping up around 2008, 2010. And it's only continued to advance and continued to become more of a prominent presence within our development as far as our resources go. I talked about cost cutting. Back in the day, 20, 25 years ago, if you were on an IndyCar team, you'd probably, you'd probably test outside of a race weekend 25, 30 days out of the year, which is a lot. 30, 30 tests is quite substantial outside of 17 20 uh, race weekend calendar year. Nowadays, we probably only test four or five times outside of our race weekends. So there's been a dramatic reduction in 
real life testing, you know, where we can actually go and try and develop the car, develop, develop the driver, just practice really, right? After a brief pit stop, we'll talk to Joseph about the mental and physical aspects of racing at high speed. There's more Adrenaline Zone right around the corner. What if you could get energy, immunity, and strength in one sip? Well, now you can. Zoa is the fastest growing energy drink on the market, created by Dwayne The Rock Johnson to fuel risk takers and world changers like you. Zoa is packed with superfoods like Kamu Kamu and Acerola Cherries that provide multiple B vitamins and 100% vitamin C. Plus, Zoa has just the right kick of caffeine from green tea and green coffee in five amazing flavors. Look for it on Amazon, at your favorite retailer, or order online at zoaenergy.com. That's Z-O-A energy.com. One of the things that as a pilot I can relate to is that one thing you you have a hard time actually simulating is the physical aspects of being in the car. And I don't think it occurs to that many people that race car driving is actually pretty physically demanding. But my understanding is just the opposite is true, especially in the Indy car, which I understand has no power assist for the, its steering system. So there's got to be a lot of gym time and discipline. Can you tell us about how you prepare physically for what's a pretty grueling activity? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's one of the hardest things to convey to people. If, if you look at football on TV, it's pretty easy to understand the athleticism behind it. Anyone can take a football to their backyard and understand why Tom Brady is so good at what he does or why a running back is so skilled at what they do. It, it's very easy to relate to. Racing, not so much. I think people have an, an alternate perspective or they have an inaccurate perspective on what driving a race car is all about because most people drive a road car every day and they, they just assume it's very similar to that. But to your point and some of the things that you brought up, an IndyCar, very lightweight, 1,600 pounds, produces about 5,500 pounds of downforce at 200 miles per hour, which is a substantial amount of force. You know, you're almost, you're pretty much three, a little bit over three times the uh, amount of the body weight of the car of just force being compressed onto the car through, through aerodynamics. So with that comes a lot of G-loading, similar to you guys piloting, piloting airplanes in, in, this, in the sky. It, it's, you're, you're pulling all this loading on your body. For us, what's sort of normal is about three to four Gs under braking conditions and then four to five Gs under cornering. And as you guys are very familiar with, you're pulling those Gs and you're, you're basically experiencing your body weight go up four or five X in some conditions and for a sustained period of time. So that's just the loading component of it. And then you think about heat and you think about the no power steering element. Because we don't have power steering, our, our steering weight can get up to about 30 foot-pounds of torque at peak, and it's probably averaging about you know, 20 foot-pounds for just an average load. That's like going into the gym and picking up a 20 or 30-pound plate and trying to hold on to that for an hour and a half and just continually trying to turn. So you're trying to fight all these forces while having this, this heavy steering, and then you add the heat component on top of it where the cockpit of the car could be about 150, 120 degrees on a hot day. So. All of those loads and stresses, yeah, make your physical uh, demands very high. And at the same time, and I can relate a little bit to this, but not at the extended periods of time you've had to do it, is you have to be thinking also. <laughs> There's an awful lot going on intellectually. Yeah. Uh, crazy. Yeah, and that, that, that kind of goes back. And I've always told people, 
within IndyCar, there's different demands at different tracks. Indianapolis for the 500 is is a lot less physically demanding. It's a lot more mentally taxing um, because the the maneuvers are so much more fine and they're so much more important. You know, when you're traveling at 240 miles per hour, your margin for error is a lot less, especially when you have 30 other cars around you and you're, you're you know traveling at that rate of speed. So mentally, it's a very taxing environment. But then you compare that to a street course environment where you're probably only doing 170 miles per hour as a top speed. But there's a lot more room for error. And it's not mentally as taxing to figure out where your car needs to be placed. There's a higher margin for, for error. But the, the physical environment of a street course race is, is way more grueling. So they can, you know, bounce back and forth between those two elements, I find. So you've described the piece parts of being in the car during a race. Can you put it all together? Because it sounds like you've got physically demanding, mentally demanding. You've got the, the question I really have is the randomness of the drivers around you and how you have managed to react to them or what you're thinking as you're trying to figure out what the heck they're doing so you can avoid crashes. Yeah, this is what I've always told people. And, and what I think is so important to understand is it, it doesn't matter who's at fault when you get into a crash. It doesn't matter if it's not my fault and it's the other guy's fault. I still got into a crash. We still didn't finish that race. And some people don't look at it that way. I know other drivers that don't look at it that way. They get very proud about their driving. And if someone else does something wrong, they're mad at them and that's their fault and they should know better and they try and bully them around. I think you're always calculating risk on, on where, how far you can push your competitors depending on who they are. You're trying to always understand that environment and, and each opponent. But for me, I, I always, and I've developed this over my career to get better at it, but I've always tried to protect myself and my equipment at all costs. Um, so I'm always looking for these little moments where if things go, I can see how that would work. But I'm looking for that unknown or that intangible, that thing that I can't really always account for. And, and I think you need to do that because if someone makes a mistake, if someone tries to make a pass underneath me, and I just assume they're going to execute that pass perfectly. And if that happens, great. Then we, we get through the corner, we go on to the next. But, it, but if they make a slight miscalculation, and I don't give a little bit of margin for that miscalculation, and we get into a wreck and it's not my fault, we're still not finishing the race. And we still have an opportunity to get to the next phase of the race and win. Yeah, you're constantly calculating those things. And I think some of the great drivers are really good at that. They have a good sense for how much they can push each individual that they're racing. Yeah, so you're managing risk dynamically on the fly based on your understanding of sort of the habits and the patterns and the trends of the other drivers. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. I used to call landing airplanes on aircraft carriers the ultimate in motor sports, but I've never said that to a race car driver, so I have to apologize for that terrible gaffe right up front. But I do know that managing a machine at high speeds requires split-second timing that can't necessarily be done with your brain thinking in series. It's more of a parallel right brain kind of processing. Is that how you look at it? And I would imagine when you're maneuvering in traffic at such high speeds, you're not able to go, he's doing this, so I'll do this. It's more of a flow uh, a reaction kind of thing. Can you talk about how you process that? I think you're training in your processing unit because you can't. Yeah. If there's a wreck, let's take Indianapolis. If I'm traveling at 240 miles per hour and there's a wreck 250 feet in front of me, 
I can't compute my reaction time quick enough to, you know, really assess the wreck that just happened directly in front of me and how I'm going to, how I'm going to maneuver around that. Some of that is instinctual. And I think some of it is trained instinctual. I I don't, that's not a term, but for the purpose of this conversation to drive the thought process of it, I, I think you're always sorting, trying to train your brain on these various outcomes. You can only be so prepared for, for every situation. The more you go through the process of practicing different outcomes and different scenarios and training your brain to think like that, I think the reaction from your body and your inputs generally follows, at least it has for me. So some things you can assess really quickly when you have just enough time and, and you can you know, train yourself to make the right decision. And then some things you hope that you instinctively take takes over correctly. Through, through a lot of the mental process that you've been going through to train yourself to make the right decision. So yeah, some of it happens so fast when you, we don't always make the right decision. And in racing, you can't always do that, especially at a place like Indianapolis. But I think you try and give yourself the best opportunity to, to make the right decision. So, Joseph, I understand that you're one heck of a ping pong player and gamer. Does that hand-eye type coordination for those activities, consider, is that part of your training? Do you consider that part of your training? Or is that fun and relaxing and there's no training component at all? Some people have told me that's got to be part of the edge. I think it's my dad always says that. He's like, this has to be part of your edge. There is some truth behind that. Hand-eye coordination and reaction time. We've actually been tested. We've been tested out of a research firm out of Miami that, that measures our central neurological system. And how quickly we react to things, how quickly our eyes can track and follow. And race car drivers are generally very, very good. As far as our reaction times go, they're, they're generally on the top end of humans across the board. I'm glad they didn't have that kind of testing when I started flying because they may not have <laughs> let me in. Uh, <laughs> as a reminder, this episode of The Adrenaline Zone is brought to you by Zoa Energy. ZOA is designed to support healthy immunity while providing a boost of energy and hydration. And you can always find out more on ZOAenergy.com. Joseph, I would imagine you spend a lot of time worried about something called traction. We talked about that a little bit earlier. And I've heard another way of describing the downforce produced by an Indy car at speed is it would allow it to drive upside down on a ceiling if that were possible. But there have to be a lot of other factors. You use two different types of tires. Track conditions vary from track to track and day to day. How do you get to, to understand when you're on the edge of that traction thing? Because it can be disastrous if you lose it without going too far. How do you get to that point as a driver? Yeah, it's such a fine line. We're constantly trying to maximize the capability of the car. And that can mean a lot of things. If you're looking at just one corner on, let's say, a road course, there's multiple phases to it. It's how quickly you enter with the car, how much you're using the capacity of the tire on entry, how much you're using the capacity of the tire in the middle, and then how much you're using on the exit. And you're just constantly always trying to be at the limit of the car, or the tire, I should say, and getting the most speed out of that. But there's just there's so much involved in that. Some of it comes down to some of it comes down to feel. You, you develop this feel for where the limit of the car is at. And the, the downforce thing is really interesting because when you're young, you'd learn about the limit of, of adhesion with a 
given car, given tire without that component in there. There's generally no wings in the car. It's not really creating a lot of downforce. And then you move up the levels and you get these cars like Indy cars that, that create tremendous amounts of downforce. And it's like a blanket of grip that you've just put on top of essentially just the mechanical grip of the car, which most of it is just the tire. So you're learning how to get the most out of that. Is, it's like black magic, I'd say. It really is. It's just like a dark art. Understanding how to drive a car with downforce at the limit, it's a very hard thing to get your head around. So a lot of it just takes practice, learning how to drive this invisible blanket of grip that's on top of the inherent mechanical grip of the car. Joseph, it sounds definitely like a symphony of forces and timing to get all this right and get around the track at the speeds that you guys do. And I know sometimes things do go wrong. And at the Firestone 600 in 2016 at the Texas Motor Speedway, you crashed hard into the wall, breaking both your hand and your clavicle. But two weeks later, you were back in a race already. Tell us a bit about that experience and that mental, the safety involved and the mental toughness to just come back from potential crashes like that, real crashes and potential crashes like that. Yeah, there's, there's always the, the risk factor of racing. Everyone accepts it as a driver. It's impossible for us to eliminate every single risk. And so it's part of the program. I think it's why we like doing what we do. If there wasn't that component to it, I don't think it'd be as exciting or as thrilling. And it's, it's the same people watching the sport. As weird as it is to say, but you, you know, you're almost watching these gladiators in a way go out there and try and push. It's man pushing machine to the limit. And, and that's what we love to watch. I like doing it inside the car. And, and as a fan, I like watching it from the outside too. So this wreck that you mentioned in Texas back in 2016 was the worst wreck I've ever had. I, I crashed at about 220 miles per hour. I was passing a car coming off the final corner, turn four, and this car to the inside of me, just they, they started to lose the rear of the car. They started losing rear traction. They overcorrected into my car, and then we both went straight into the wall to the right of us, the concrete barrier. And my car actually ended up flipping on its side, and then I rolled down the front straightaway and then crashed into the front straight wall, basically head first. And thank goodness, it just it really worked out for me. The, the, the roll hoop support on the car did its job, so the crash structure right above my head basically stayed up, and I didn't have any major injuries. But yeah, I broke my clavicle, broke my right hand. I thought I was going to be out for a couple months. Most people did. And I said, no way, I don't want anyone driving my car. So whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to go to the doctor. I'm going to get this clavicle plated. I'm going to find how to brace my hand and tape it to the steering wheel. And I'm, I'm going to drive the car in two weeks. And everyone thought I was nuts. But I said, you know what? This is, I didn't break my back or something. If I broke my back, it'd be impossible for me to do that. But I said, these injuries, I can make this work. So I'm going to do everything I can to get fixed up, patched up. I'm going to get in the simulator. I'm going to prove to you guys I can drive in the simulator, and then you're going to let me drive in real life. And it's essentially what I did. And then two races later, I ended up winning one of the biggest races of my life. And I think it's really the opportunity or that, that race win and get back in the car. I think it's what gave me the opportunity to drive for Team Penske the year afterwards. That was probably the situation you've been in on the track, but there have to be plenty of other close calls. Any other near misses that stand out in your mind where you, you know, had your heart in your throat and you were worried whether you were going to get through it? A lot of the ones that, that make you worried are the ones that never happen. It's the, it's the could have beens really. And those happen frequently sometimes on, uh, typically in oval racing. 
because I've been in it, in the sport for 10 years now, and I've seen some pretty vicious wrecks that I've not been a part of, but I've witnessed either right in front of me or, or witnessed around me. And enough situations or scenarios and how things can turn so quickly. And it's really just when you're driving things and, and how they can develop so quickly. You know, a car can get into the catch fence. Two cars could interlock could interlock wheels and, and someone could go flying. But I think that for the last 10 years when I joined the sport was not having any head protection. We, we did have head protection in a sense, but the most exposed section of our car was our head because it was an open cockpit, open wheel race car. It's what Indy cars are traditionally. The, the wheels, I should say the tires are exposed on the race car. That's what makes them look like a jet fighter. They're very slim down and sleek. And then the cockpit itself is, is an open cockpit. So the helmet of the driver is exposed. Mm-hmm. And so that was always the, the sort of the riskiest part of this sort of racing is the open cockpit. And this last year, we actually put a canopy on the car. It's the first time it's, it's ever happened in open wheel uh, racing history. And now there's some substantial head protection in place. Yeah. And if you guys are continuing to up the speeds that you're driving at, that makes totally good sense, actually. Joseph, speaking of risk, you share risk on the track with a lot of other drivers. And these are people like you who are highly competitive. They've got a lot at stake. They also want to be safe. Can you talk about how that relationship works on and off the track, shared risk, but also competition? Yeah, it's a great one. Uh, great question because there's a there's definitely a a known relationship there amongst all the drivers. You know that at the end of the day, we're sharing the track, uh, we're sharing the responsibility to take care of each other. We're competitors, fierce competitors. I mean, you get on the track and. Anyone will do anything to win a race. We're so competitive that whatever it takes to get the job done, we're going to do it. We're going to race each other pretty hard. But at the end of the day, you have to take care of each other because there's risks within the sport. and We all want to come out of each race safe enough to, to go to the next one. You have to think about how things could go terribly wrong if, if you, you overstep. And that's a, that's a hard balance. Race car drivers are going to go for any gap, any opening, any opportunity to potentially make a pass or to potentially win a race, we're going to take every one of them. So to ask someone to temper that, at least with some reality that some of these situations could turn very bad, it's really hard for any of us to do. The veterans of the sport are much better at it. I would consider myself probably a veteran now 10 years in. I definitely understand how we need to take care of each other when we're at a track like Andy doing 240 miles per hour and we're nearly touching wheels. There's an etiquette that needs to be involved there and a sensibility to take care of each other. The younger guys struggle with that. You have a 19, 20-year-old that's full of energy and ready to prove themselves and they don't really think about the risk. They struggle to temper that. And so we're constantly trying to educate the youth that comes into the sport of what can happen, how someone could get killed. A lot of the veterans have seen people get killed in race cars in Mm -hmm. these situations. We try and spread that knowledge as best as possible, but the old guys and gals, they get it. They get it much better. Sounds like fighter pilots. (laughs) For our listeners who might have had the opportunity to take a glimpse inside the cockpit of an ND car, the steering wheel alone is a pretty complicated piece of, of machinery. 
Can you give us a sense for the kinds of controls and indications that you have at your fingertips in the car? Yeah, definitely. It's one of the most important pieces to the equation, especially nowadays with what we have available on it. An Indy car is much more slimmed down purposely. We try and keep the the technology aid that the driver could get to a minimum. And we do that purposely because we'd like to make it as, as difficult as, as an environment for the driver. We want the driver really to be showcasing their talent on driving the car. So anything like traction control or automatic braking systems or any other tuning aids that you could be putting on the, the car that we could continually dial up and down to make ourselves faster. We've stripped a lot of that. But now we have a nice LCD monitor, which is almost infinite on what we can put on the dash. We run about probably eight dash pages, which is in this the central monitor inside the wheel. And a lot of them are just various different information. We're running over 110 sensors on the car, whether it's just from the engine or it's, it's literally sensing tire pressures or brake temperatures or our tire temperatures themselves, or you're looking at downforce loads, you're looking at suspension travel. There's all sorts that you can play with and look at. You know, for me, I keep my, my page pretty simple. I want to see what lap time I'm running. I want to look at my segment time. So I'm looking at how I'm doing across multiple sections of the track instead of just my one lap time for a complete lap. I want to look at fuel burn. I want to look at my fuel load. Simple things like having the, the lap count on there. How far are we into the race? I, I like looking at tire temperatures. So all that's really individualized per driver for what they want to see. And you can toggle between different pages. And then the wheel itself is customized. A lot of people won't be familiar with this, but on, a, on an Indy car, you can actually change the dynamic weight of the car so that it can inherently change the balance on entry, middle, and exit. So we can toggle those back and forth and just basically raises the rear ride height on the right rear. And, and so you can shift where the weight is on the race car to, to improve or, or change your handling balance. And then we've got roll bars as well. So the front and rear roll bar in the car, we can stop, soften or stiffen those adjustments. And those are just a few things that we can all play around with as we're cutting laps on the track. And you're doing this all at 240 miles an hour, by the way. Pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. Corner to corner, lap to lap, you know, all the time. Yeah. That's a lot. There's a lot going on there. And I'm assuming the telemetry is going to the pit and you have communications with the pit, but yet communicating takes a little bit of your mental bandwidth as well. So how much are you really talking to the pit and what kind of conversations do you have? Yeah. And that's, that's driver to driver. That's a workflow thing. It's where everybody's comfortable, but yeah, exactly. I can only look at so much. There's only so much that's going to be useful at the time when I'm trying to maximize lap time, driving the car at its limit and looking out for my environment around me and also planning for how the race is you know, progressing or how it's flowing. But then you have the eagle in the sky, which is our pit box, and they're seeing everything. They're not having to worry about the stress of driving the car. They're seeing all the channels of information. So if there's anything really pertinent, they can get it to us immediately. They don't see it from my vantage point. So the information I'm giving back to the team on how I think the race is developing is really important for them. But then it's also really important for them to relay to me what they think is happening in the race because they're seeing it differently. Yeah, yeah it's funny. It's like our relationship with mission control while we're on orbit a little bit. It makes yeah. it more dynamic in your case. A hundred percent. No, it's, it's the exact same thing, I'm sure. So, Joseph, I was really privileged one year to uh, spend a little bit of time in that little shack that's above the pit 
where the pit, I guess, boss is doing his work. And watching these cars come in and out of the pits was just fascinating to me, but I'm sure I had no clue what was going on. Can you, you know, t- put our listeners in the car as you're going through a pit stop where every second matters and what you're thinking about there? Yeah. It's, so yeah, on a pit stop, we try and keep it as simple as possible. It's First, you need to hit your marks super well. Give your guys an opportunity, your guys and gals, a good enough opportunity to pit that car and get you out as quick as possible. That's really the most critical thing. But then when it's a busy pit lane, it is the most difficult thing to maneuver. Indianapolis is a pretty narrow pit lane. You've got you know two lanes before you get to a pit box. There's a high-speed lane and a slow-speed lane. And no one really wants to cooperate when it comes to higher low-speed lanes free-for-all. So you'll come barreling down the pit straight. It's 33 cars. You're all jammed together. Everyone's trying to get in their pit box, let alone there's hundreds of, of crew members trying to pit these cars that you're trying to maneuver around. And you don't want to hit anybody. So it's the hardest thing to try and just get your bearings and, and make sure you get in and get out of that, that pit as, as quickly as you can. So I'm not really thinking about car performance in those moments. It's more about how do I just maneuver this traffic? That sounds actually like a pretty high risk moment compared to a lot of the race just because of the density of the traffic and the chaos in in the process. Yeah, it, it really is. And really for the pit guys, they're the, they're gladiators in that moment because they're just out there, no protection. They got a helmet on. Yeah, They could get hit at any moment. So here we are in the middle of a race. We've got technology, you've got talent, you've got training. But there always is an element of luck involved in this. And, and so can you talk us through emotionally how you go through those highs and lows as things unfold in the middle of the race and how you manage the maybe emotional swings involved in that things out of your control? Yeah, it's a great, you know, for me, it's the hardest part of the sport is just the things that you can't control. But we, we work on, we focus on every day, what's in our control, but the things that, you know, happen during some of these races that strip you of an opportunity to, to either win the race or, or, or something else. It's the hardest thing to deal with. And at the end of the day, you just have to maintain your composure and, and keep working and moving forward. If something happens halfway through a race, say you say I'm leading the event and a yellow comes out the exact wrong time and everybody's pitted behind me, but I haven't pitted yet. The way our series works, you'll go to the back of the field essentially, because I'm, I'm going to need to pit. I'm going to take this opportunity to pit under a caution so I don't lose a ton of time, especially because it's stacked the whole field up. So those are the things that can be really tough. Um, but if that happens halfway through the race, when it's probably going to ruin your day and you're not going to win the event, you got to maintain your composure. If I get pushed back to 20th place now, well, I still got to do everything in my power to get back forward as far as possible. And, and that's for the championship. I don't want to finish 20th on the day. If I can make my way back up to 8th or 7th, well, it's still a pretty decent day and it's a good recovery. So maintaining your composure is really important in those moments. And, and then overall, on a weekend note, you leave that type of weekend where something happened that you didn't control and maybe it ruined a race and you should have won and you didn't, you can't let that linger into the next event. If we have a 17-race championship, I, I can afford maybe one race to go wrong, but I can't afford to have three or four go wrong in a row. I'm trying to keep everybody in the right mental space when things go wrong that we you know, hadn't foreseen or hadn't had any control over it's really hard and it certainly takes a little bit of mental practice. Yeah, Joseph, so clearly the profession that you're in carries a lot of risk. And with that risk comes stress, both for you and for your team, actually. But how, how do you deal with the stress personally? How do you manage all of that? Another thing 
that's not very known for me is that I'm a total introvert. It, it's it's pretty hard for me. It's taxing for me to, to to go to a race weekend and be around the amount of people that we're around on race weekend and have all the demands that are put on us. And it's hard to complain about it when you're an introvert. You don't really have a choice in the matter of not liking it. It just kind of is what it is. It's just a trait of, of me and my personality. So you learn to deal with it. You learn to manage that. But a lot of what I have to do is I have to just recharge. I got to I come back home. I On a race weekend, I'll, I'll come back home. And, and the first day back, I'm, I'm, I could just stare at a wall all day. And it'll, ha- it'll help me feel better. <laughs> so... I think managing your energy levels throughout the year is really important. Um, that kind of speaks to the stress side of it. And, it. and if you can do that, then, you know, it, it helps you a lot to, to manage it over the, the entire season. So one of the questions I'm really curious about, Joseph, is one of the things that I believe makes U.S. Air Force, U.S. Navy fighter pilots better than almost anybody in the world is our culture. And part of that culture is really intense debriefs, uh, self-criticism, that sort of thing. Very a lot of candor. Can you talk us a little bit about the culture of a really successful IndyCar team? You've won this thing twice, so you know what it's like. How does that culture work for you? Yeah, I think Penske is one of the best for it. From the outside, it, it looks very intimidating. It looks like a cold environment. I know before I joined the team, I was a little nervous about it. It didn't look like the friendliest place to be. And then I joined it, and I I learned pretty quickly that it's a tight knit group. Everyone. It's a great working environment. A lot of the success of that is making sure that you're working as a team. Some of it just sounds cheesy, but it's so true. At the end of the day, we're looking to get the most out of each other. And you feel that way when you walk in the door at Team Penske. You already feel this calling to get the most. And that's really hard to, it's hard to replicate at some places. You don't get that sense of calling when you walk into every race team that, oh, I, I have to be the best version of myself that I can be. But I felt that way immediately when I walked into Team Penske. And so you're asking that of yourself. You're asking that of your teammates. But you're making sure that you're getting the most out of each other as a team and you're working together as a team. We're not selfish. We're honest with each other. Honesty to me is so critical. If I, if I go out on the track and they made a change, and they want my you know, feedback for the change. If I don't know what the, really happened with the car, if I didn't have a good sense of it, I can't lie about it. I can't just make something up and lead us down you know, a rabbit hole just because I'm embarrassed because I, I, I didn't get a good read on it. I'm going to be honest, say I didn't get a good read. We either have to rerun it or, um, or we just have to have a harder look at it. Yeah, that's the best way to manage risks too, quite frankly. Yeah, we have a couple of final questions. Number one, I'm an introvert and I totally understand what you're talking about and just wanting downtime. So one of the, one of the final questions is what are unique rituals that you have to either prepare yourself when you walk out on the field or to do that relaxing? And number two, at the very beginning, when you started uh, telling us a little bit about your upbringing, you mentioned that your parents were a little nervous about you going into karting. So I'm wondering now that you're, you know, performing at the top of the profession in race cars that are traveling so fast, if they've gotten used to the idea of you doing this. So <laughs> I'll answer the second one first. It's remarkable how comfortable and content they are now. I do think my mom gets very, very nervous. They like to have someone at the event every weekend, whether it's my wife or my wife can't be there. 
they like to have my dad there or something. They just want to have a family member on the grounds whenever I'm out of race weekends. They've gotten a lot better, but they do like that procedure just in case if something goes wrong. And then for pre-race rituals or, you know, ceremonies, I, I don't have a lot of superstitions. I'm not a superstitious person. I, I've tried to make myself that way from the very beginning. And I, I don't knock it. I think if it works for someone, they should do it if they have superstitions. But the, the one thing that I do nowadays is I like to take a nap. If I can get a 30 or 45 minute nap before I got to walk out and do my job on, on race day, that's normally my, my happy place. That's what I look for and ask from the team if I can get that, that time and space. And it's funny, when I first started, I would get deathly tired right before a race would start. And I, I have not fully understood why. I don't know if that's the adrenaline that's making me tired or it's having the opposite effect instead of hyping me up and making me extra alert. Maybe it's making me a little bit down. But it used to make me so nervous because I, I was so tired before I was about to strap in the car. And I, I knew I had this responsibility. Like we've, we have all these people here. We spent all this money to get to this moment and to run this race this weekend. And I've got to get in and do the job now. And I'm like, man, I don't feel prepared to do it. But the funniest thing to me was that the races I was most tired before were, were the, my, my best days out of the year. They were my best days. I always had my best races when I was deathly tired before the race started. So I, I just, I thought that was so funny. And taking it to heart and i always try and take a nap now before a race wow that's, that's awesome. amazing <laughs> joseph this has just been an absolutely amazing and energizing discussion that I, I could actually talk to you for a couple more hours but i know you probably got to get back out on the track i would say that if you ever want to sit down and talk about airplanes or the space shuttle or something like that i think you'd probably have a couple of eager participants in that discussion congratulations again on your success as a driver we really look forward to seeing you on the track here in the near future with Team Penske. And thanks so much for spending time with our listeners today. It was terrific. Thank you all so much. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a delight. Thank you, Joseph. Total pleasure. Yeah, I hope to come back at some point. We can chat some more. That was IndyCar driver Joseph Newgarten. I'm Sandra Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Get ready to fuel your summer jam with Zoa Energy. Check them out at zoaenergy.com. Join us back in the Adrenaline Zone next week for a new episode. And be sure to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.